Welcome to our first Co-op Energy Talk podcast for 2016. We're now in the second year of our podcast. In 2015, we discussed everything from Michigan's energy policy to Germany's energy policy to electric vehicles. So a lot of cool topics, and we have a lot of cool topics planned for this year as well. And to start, today we wanted to tackle a big one, the Clean Power Plan. And just to make sure you kind of all know what the Clean Power Plan is, it's sometimes also referred to as 111D rules, which is a reference to its section in the Clean Air Act. It's an administrative rule that was issued uh, from the EPA at the um, request of President Obama. Obama asked the EPA to create this some sort of a plan to decrease greenhouse gas emissions in the summer of 2013. The EPA released then an initial draft of the Clean Power Plan, and there was a comment period. Interestingly, they received 4.3 million comments, many of them from co-op members, even our own members. We had several hundred Cherryland members who commented asking the EPA to make sure to uh, account for cost and the impact that any rules might have on our rates. So um, a great chance for our our members to get involved. Uh, The EPA took those comments and released their final plan last August. That plan sets emissions reduction targets by state, and states are expected to meet those targets with some combination of um, improving the heat rate of existing coal-fired power plants, transitioning to more natural gas from coal-fired power plants, and also obviously using renewables. And so now it's the state's job to kind of come up with a plan to do that and then submit that back to the EPA, uh, and the deadline to do that is September of 2016. So at this point, we have now exhausted my total knowledge of the Clean Power Plan, and there's a lot more to it. It's a very complicated rule. And so we wanted to invite someone who knows more about it than we do. So I have uh, two people with me here today. Uh, First, as usual, we have Tony Anderson, our general manager here at Cherryland. Hello. And in addition, joining us, we have Zach Anderson from Wolverine Power Cooperative. Zach is the merchant operations supervisor for Wolverine, and Wolverine is our power supplier here at Cherryland. Zach has been with Wolverine since 2011, and his background includes power supply portfolio management, fuel and power contract negotiations, and oversight of Wolverine's energy market activities. In addition, he comes from co-op country. He is a South Dakota native with a degree from Northern State University in Aberdeen, and he is currently working on his MBA at Western Michigan University. So thanks for joining us, Zach. Thanks for having me. So, Zach, um, kind of, do you have anything to add to what how I describe the clean power plan, or how, how do you explain explain the clean power plan to people? I, I think you you hit the the high points on the head, and and that helps sort of frame where this came from. But I think I'll step us back maybe a few years further and talk about how we arrived at regulating carbon in the United States, why it's an administrative rule versus a um, legislative package that came through and said, this is how we'll do it. And that leads us to why it's really Michigan's problem to solve versus here's your set of rules from the federal government and here's how we're going to do it. So to start with, I'll, I'll talk a little bit about in 2007, um, the state of Massachusetts sued the EPA, which was then um, under the Bush administration, asking the EPA to regulate carbon as a pollutant. And I won't get into whether or not anyone agrees or disagrees. We could spend all day talking about, does carbon cause global warming? Will the Clean Power Plan 
have a real impact on global carbon emissions that actually reduce global warming if that's what is causing it. There's so many issues that we could unpack and talk about for hours and hours and hours. And it's really more about that first step, which was the lawsuit at EPA to say, you must regulate carbon. And then when the Obama administration comes in, in that first year, 2008, uh, Congress took up a bill that was sponsored by uh, two congressmen, um, Harvey Waxman and uh, Congressman Markey, and it's commonly known as Waxman-Markey, and they passed that bill through the House regulating um, carbon, and that failed in the Senate, and then it took until 2012 for the Obama administration to start looking at the proposed rule and how they were going to do it, and then through the EPA, they released the proposed rule in 2014. The final rule came out, as you mentioned, in August. And the bottom line is we're now in a world where carbon will be regulated on, in some form or fashion. In fact, yesterday, the first of the legal um, efforts, West Virginia versus EPA, to that sought to stay the rule, was um, it, it failed essentially. And so the rule will stay in place and move forward at this point. And uh, I believe whether the clean power plan as it currently exists or some future rule comes about, we're in a world where carbon will be regulated. So. Why, why did Obama wait from 2008 to 2012? The bill failed in 2008. He could have stepped in and done the same thing, but he waited four years. Why is that? I mean, I'm obviously not in the president's head, but it, it's a... <laughs> Put yourself in the president's head. I, I think it's a great question. Um, I think the the biggest thing is that it was very, very difficult to, did they have the authority to put out a rule that regulated emissions from power plants? That was question one, because knowing full well the amount of money, um, co-ops are a small fish in this big pond of the utility world, the amount of money that would be thrown out to get the rule thrown away completely that mm -hmm. was going to come at them, the number of comments that would come about from this, they were very careful, very diligent in the planning for the rule, which is another reason that my personal opinion is this rule will probably survive through the gauntlet of legal challenges to come. Yeah. So basically, when the legislation failed, the administration just put all their ducks in a row and did their homework to set up something pretty solid, and it took them four years to do that. A very good way of putting it. So are there additional legal avenues that um, co-ops or, or maybe our co-ops are going to pursue? Or you, you mentioned the um, Circuit Court of Appeals in D.C. throwing or, or denying the request, but is there a next step on the legal side? Do you uh, know? Yeah, it, it'll continue and go all the way to the Supreme Court, likely summer of 2017. We'll see it reach the highest court in the land to kind of make the final decision. That's um, what I've read and or heard from some people that are fighting the legal battle, NRECA being one of them. Um, in fact, Michigan's attorney general is another one that is um, leading the fight against uh, the rule and saying that EPA basically can't do this. And one of the interesting fun facts about Clean Power Plan is the 111D section that you referenced is about a paragraph long, and they've turned that paragraph into um, 
thousands and thousands of pages, 3,500 plus pages of um, rule to say, here's how we're going to do this. And this rule is fundamentally different from any other rule that's come out of the Clean Air Act in that every rule before this 111D Clean Power Plan has been directed at specific actions, a plant or even if you take a look at how EPA regulates other things like vehicles, that a specific item or plant or vehicle could take to reduce some type of emission, whether it's sulfur or nitrous oxide, on and on and on, you can do this by the best um, available emission reduction system. Whereas there's nothing a power plant today can put on that power plant to reduce emissions within the, I'll say, four walls of that power plant. So this is a fundamentally different rule from anything that's come before it. So let me just say that back to you to make sure I understood it. So what you're saying is we don't have the technology today to comply with the rule? Is that what you're saying? Yes and no. So yes, from the standpoint that if I own a power plant, there's no way that I can reduce the emissions to the level that the EPA would like that power plant to be at within the fence line of the power plant. Now through retirements outside of the power plant, different ways of new resources, utilizing natural gas more, some of those building blocks that you talked about, there's ways that we can get there, but it's different than just saying, okay, I've got a diesel truck, I'm gonna put a urea tank on that diesel truck and regulate the emissions coming out of it. There's no box you can put on a power plant to reduce its carbon emissions today. It's yeah. basically the death, a death knell to most coal-fired power plants. Is yeah, that, I, right? I think the opposition would argue that there, there is technology to, to get there today and that's called the off switch. You just shut those plants off and you've hence complied. Because isn't one of the strategies that will shut the power plants off for a period of time during the year and then run them the other time to meet those limitations? Well, you, EPA gives you a budget of one thing I didn't lay out was that this is focused on natural gas, primarily combined cycle. It doesn't touch the, the simple cycle gas turbines that Wolverine operates. Yeah. Peaking plants versus 24-7 uh, plants is combined cycle and, Correct. and simple cycle. Correct. And so the other thing that it heavily regulates is coal. And so EPA essentially lays out a budget and says, those two sources, here's how much carbon you're allowed to emit. Now states, we're leaving it to you to figure out how you hit those numbers. So if it's practical for a plant to operate two months out of the year and that'll keep the state within their budget, that could be a way to get at that. But that's yet to be determined of how that will work. But yeah. And that's, then, yeah. Then if you shut that coal plant off, you have to turn something else on to keep the grid in balance and to um, keep the lights on. That's correct. That something else is most likely natural gas. Correct. So you mentioned that, you know, we have these targets and the states now have to come up with a plan to meet their target. Can you talk, like, what, what does that involve? What, who's doing that? Yeah. Is, What's Michigan doing? Yeah. That, that's another great question. So, so far, um, me and uh, Brian Warner, who is Wolverine's vice president of environmental strategy, um, we've been working through a technical advisory group at the state to 
lay out what modeling assumptions will be used to look at how Michigan could comply to the clean power plan. Mm -hmm. And that's step one in this process that really on a timeline will take us all the way through September of 2018 before we have to submit the final, final plan to EPA that says here's how Michigan will comply. And so right now we're just trying to get a sense of how Michigan could comply and then from there we'll have a broader stakeholder group that includes not only Wolverine and, uh, and Mecca, but it will include De Detroit Edison, Consumers Energy, all the municipal um, utilities within, within Michigan, and then you have environmental groups at the table as well, Sierra Clubs and NRDCs and Union of Concerned Scientists. It's a very broad yeah. group. And so our members can keep track of where is that taking place at the state level? That's Whose department is that in? Who's, who's the main contact in the Snyder administration? So it's uh, Valerie Brader's office, um, which is the Michigan Agency for Energy in conjunction with the Michigan Public Service Commission and the Department of Environmental Quality, the DEQ. So it's more than one department. So it, this touches a lot of areas, and um, that's why there's a lot of people involved. So this group is essentially kind of negotiating who's, who's going to have to shut down what or who's going to have to transition what or who's going to have to build and buy renewable what, right? That's, is that basically what they're doing? Yeah, again, yes and no. Um, it, they're trying to figure out, okay, if this happens, what in a vacuum, take the utilities' names off of it, we're not going to mandate DTU do this, consumers you do this. They're looking at the budget and they're saying, with the plants that are in, a, that are in Michigan today operating, what do our emission levels look like? If a certain number of those plants go away, where could our emissions go? and how do we see this playing out and what would replace it. So to a degree, the state's job is to um, take the names out of it and find a, f a fair way to administer the budget that they've been given from EPA. And, and when you say budget, do you mean, it, you're talking in terms of like an allowable amount of carbon? Yes. A budgeted amount of carbon. Correct. Yeah. And that's the emission targets. That's the emission uh, how targets. How does the average person understand what an emission target is? And what can you put that in layman's terms? I, I think the best analogy I could use, because, I mean, even for me, trying to understand millions of short tons of carbon is, is very difficult, if not impossible. And I think a great way to think about this is if the EPA decided to regulate the amount of fuel we could use. So I'll use unleaded fuel. We all drive cars. Um, and so the EPA came to the state of Michigan and said, uh, you can use 50 gallons per year, Michigan, figure out who gets those gallons. And if you use more than 50 gallons, you need to look for other areas to trade with. And this is very much the same. It's just, it's a budget that Michigan's been given with some parameters to decide how it divvies up that carbon budget, but they're basically saying, here it is, you guys figure out who gets it and how they're there to use it. And how are those guys working together? You have the big IOUs, the municipals, the enviros at the table, and the co-ops. How is this work group getting along? Is there angst? Is there arguments? Or what's going on down in Lansing? Uh, 
I, I think for the most part, everybody's still trying to feel their way through the rule without putting all of their cards on the table, to be really frank about that. Um, but I think what you see is we all act in ways to um, try to put ourselves, whether that's Wolverine or a distribution cooperative or the big IOU, what puts me, at whatever hat I'm wearing, what puts me in the best situation possible? And that goes on to the environmental um, groups that are angling for energy efficiency and renewables. They'll see a benefit if we do that more because they probably administer an EO program or they have some tie to, hey, if we do more wind or solar and things like that. So everybody's kind of angling on their corner without throwing the cards on and when do they have to put their lay their cards down? I mean, there's a deadline for working this plan out. I, I think a lot of that will start the end of February, the first part of March of this year, when we really get down to the state has run its model to say yes or no, we, we can comply, it's practical for us to do that, and then they decide how we slice and dice that budget because the slicing and the dicing of the budget determines who gets what, who's allowed to do what, how are you going to operate going forward? So are there some kind of approaches to the slicing and dicing that they're considering right now? Can you talk us through any of those? Yeah, so I, I think the, the one that EPA put out first, and I think this is a function of how we've always um, looked at clean air rules, which are you look at the plant, you see how much it's emitted, and you give it some allowance to emit a certain amount, and then for the rest, they need to buy it from the market or not operate. And so the first approach that EPA's put out is much the same. It looks at, okay, what were the historical emissions of that plant? It needs to reduce those emissions by 30%, and we will allocate maybe a certain budget to that plant, and then over and above that, it has to go out and uh, purchase from the market to al allow it to keep running at its historical level or shut down and something else will have to come on to, to pick up the pieces. Now, I think in a traditional sense, if you were able to do something at the power plant to comply within the four walls of that plant, that may work very well. But as I mentioned a while ago, this isn't a traditional clean air rule and one of the things that we're advocating for and very strongly is to allocate the allowances to the load. So at, by allocating the allowance to the load, think of I'm going to give Tony a uh, amount of carbon that his power supply can have in it and Rachel gets the same. And so every um, either end use homeowner or business in Michigan would on some level be given the same slice of that pie of that budget rather than deciding who has the most power plant gets the most allowance. It's we're all users of this energy in Michigan and really by the time it's um, even leaves a power plant, you can't distinguish which electron has carbon in it versus one that doesn't. So, so basically every kilowatt hour I sell or serve buys me one portion of an allowance and it's it's it so then if there are 500 kilowatt hours and you have 250 of them and i have 250 of them, we split those allowances evenly that's correct and so to get to that analogy of saying the government gave us a, a fuel budget of 50 gallons i compare this to the difference between 
okay, if they came to you and they said, all right, Michigan, you get 50 gallons, and the first way you could look at divvying that up is say, who were the heaviest users of, of fuel? They should get it first because they need it the most. They shouldn't, shouldn't pay that additional premium. So think of the guy that drives a Hummer and he's getting five miles to the gallon. Well, we've got to give them to him because if we don't, his costs are going to go up disproportionately. And if we give them to the person with the, a Prius and they're, they're maybe really, really efficient in how they get from point A to point B, they will use less, so therefore they need fewer allowances. And that's really the, the place that I view um, the cooperatives in Michigan and especially those that are Wolverine members. That's the position that you all are in, where you have a clean fleet and you have 30% renewables coming on in, in 2016. And so your exposure to carbon is really, really low. And so if you're not attributed allowances equal to the amount that you would potentially consume, you could be in a worse off position, even though as cooperatives, we've been leaders in clean energy. Yeah, that doesn't hardly seem fair, but it, it takes us to the issue of what should our members be worried about as far as reliability goes and as far as rates go? I mean, that's what our people really want to know. Are my lights going to stay on? And what, what am I going to have to pay it? Yeah. And so I think what we've done really well at Wolverine is we're planning for that future. We've been planning for this future for a long time. So in terms of exposure to clean power plan, uh, we have 30% of our portfolio is um, coal-based. So that will be exposed to some cost based on, on this rule. But we have an offset of 30% renewable. So Worst case scenario, those two things should wash each other out. And then you look at the cost of the new renewable that we've been able to do and bringing Alpine online. Alpine being a gas peaking plant in Gaylord. Being a gas peaking plant. That plant will be able to, from a reliability perspective, balance out the position we have on wind. We have about 350 megawatts of wind coming online at the end of 16, starting in 2017, and we will have 400 megawatts of brand new peaking generation. So when you think about reliability, when the wind doesn't blow, the sun doesn't shine, we're able to bring on a very clean, efficient plant immediately to balance those two things out. and given the price of that contract, the limited exposure we have on carbon from those contracts, and then the ability to have Alpine, we have a good strategy for both reliability and affordability. So our lights are gonna stay on, our rates are not gonna go up. So what are we even talking about the clean power plan for? I mean. <laughs> cause Zach needs something to do. <laughs> yeah. Well, but no, you know, it's interesting though, cause Zach, what I'm hearing you say is we're in a, we're in a good position and we don't need, you know, it's not like the, the sky is falling type of a situation, but really what our members should be asking for is that whatever comes out of the state plan doesn't penalize Wolverine for being leaders and for already moving towards having a cleaner that's, portfolio. That's it right there. That, that's our, yep. our main concern is that we not... We want to maintain that position and yeah, not get hurt by we, the state plan. We should get a fair number of allowances and not, not lose out because we did because we were forward thinking. Mm -hmm. that's, that's exactly right, Rachel. I think... When, when you put it in, in those exact terms, and it's, it's always a challenge to think about, okay, what is the next problem? 
Wolverine spent a long time working with our members to develop the power supply plan that we have in place that is future ready. And now we're looking to make sure that we're not penalized for taking that action early and making sure that that forward thinking and the push from our members to keep things affordable, keep things reliable. And that's what we always want to do at the, at the GNT level. And we want to make sure that the clean power plan doesn't put us in a position that all of that hard work doesn't pay off. So we have just a couple minutes left, but um, so what are the next timeline steps that people that are, I, I, we kind of hinted at where the state's going to have to put in their plan, but can you just talk us through the forward-looking timeline of the clean power plan? Yeah, so as I, as I mentioned earlier, we've got approximately 30 days before the, the stakeholder group will kick off in Michigan where we start to decide how we will comply. That leads us to um, all the way to mid-September where the state has to submit to EPA to say, we believe we can comply, here's how. And you could at that point say, here's my plan to comply EPA. But I think eyes wide open, everybody understands that six months to get ready for the next 30 years of power supply planning starting in the 2020s isn't enough time. And so EPA respecting that has given everyone time to plan for the the future and so what what is likely to happen is michigan will say here's what we've worked on so far and we will have a compliance plan ready for september of 2018 so that will give us two additional years from this september to work out those final details and so this is this is a long-term process that we're just wading into with a lot of unanswered questions but um, I think we're in a position at Wolverine and for our members to keep things affordable and reliable and work through this clean power plan because if it doesn't, um, if it doesn't go, I'll say, well, and we end up taking allowances that we should, we should receive under the clean power plan and they go to somebody else, I think we'll still be okay but the plan that we've put in place on the power supply side and being prepared for the future shouldn't leave us in a position where oh you know we're just okay and so that's what we'll be driving for is is to do the right things and make sure that the the co-op members are are in a great position for a long time so what's the um deadline or the date by which the expectation is that we've made all these reductions? Is it 2030, 2050? The final goal is 2030. Okay. So the plan that that our state will put forth in 2018 is uh, essentially here's what we're going to do to get from where we are now to wherever we need to be by 2030. That's correct. With With the first interim target, the first year that we'll see anything from Clean Power Plan in terms of saying, hey, EPA, we've done this, um, That'll be in twenty begin in twenty twenty two, so we're a lot of our members continue to read about how the lights are going to go out and utilities aren't prepared for this and utilities need need more time. But it sounds like we don't need more time. What have the other utilities been doing? What's your response to that? In less than a couple minutes because we're getting high sign, but I want to know why we're prepared and other people seemingly aren't. Maybe that's best left for later, but. Well, I, 
I could throw some people under under the bus, or I could take a I could take a very very political approach. But I think one of the interesting things to understand about the clean power plan and some of the things that are happening already is a lot of the coal plants that will retire that will allow Michigan to meet the clean power plan targets are slated to retire anyway. And to think that even though plans haven't been made public from other utilities they have plans and how that how they're going to comply but you have a strategic advantage if you say well the clean power plan made me do this therefore i have my handout give me so that's that's a pretty good answer in in reality they are probably prepared they're just again keeping their cards close to their vest and we're putting our cards out on the table exactly and so if they drag their feet and act reluctant and act like they were forced to close this down as a result of a clean power plan when in fact the plant had maybe met its useful life cycle what's the benefit of doing that the benefit of doing that is in the in the game of how i get a slice of the budget maybe i can convince someone so somewhere i can mm-hmm. f- convince someone that hey i i deserve a bigger a bigger slice of the pie because I, I have to do this, and you're going to harm harm my ratepayer because mm-hmm. they're making me do this through the through the clean power plan. I don't want to name names, but I'm going to ask a really specific question. So that slice of the pie and the financial benefits of having a bigger piece of it does that go into the pocket of a member owner or a investor? Well, I, I mean that's the beauty of a co-op, right? Is to the extent Cherryland's assigned the allowance, the value of that allowance goes directly back to the member. The the IOU, I think it should. Mm-hmm. I think there's possibly ways that the MPSC and others can, can force that value back to the customer. Mm-hmm. But in anything, if, if you give me a, a pot of money and I don't have the same uh, requirement as a co-op that my members get that money back, that, I'll leave that open. So it could essentially hurt, uh, you know, just an average homeowner out there. They're they're not going to see a reduction in their rates or any real return, but there could be a financial incentive. Basically, they don't get to access if they're not a member of a co-op. There's potentials for winners and losers in this, and that's why we're in the game, even though we're we're prepared. Yeah, and and fundamentally, what not to use uh, a scare tactic that you'll hear that it's going to make power supply costs go through the roof. But fundamentally, for this to work as it's intended, power supply prices have to change and be fundamentally different than they have been in the past. That's the only way that you take coal that's dispatched all the time at a low cost, put an adder on it to a different price level so that different plants run and you displace that traditionally lower cost power. Now, like I said, some of these coal plants need to retire anyway. They're old, they're dirty, and, they, and they've needed to retire for a long time. But there are some others that have invested in what needed to be invested in to clean up that um, will have higher costs and will be displaced by natural gas. And a lot of what drives the underlying commodity price will be determined by the price of natural gas going forward, even more so than today, which it's still driven quite a bit by that today. So it's it's entirely possible there will still be uh, rate impact from this, despite the fact that we're prepared, right? Because it's going to affect the, the, the cost of the fuels we use to 
it, it, it changes how much fuel we use. It changes the cost of a traditional lower cost supply. And so in turn, it will raise prices of those things. I mean, I'm, I'm optimistic and hopeful that we can, we can find ways to do well in a world of the clean power plan, because as I mentioned way back in the beginning, I, I think that these types of regulations are here to stay. And so we need to find a way to uh, keep our lights on and keep rates affordable. I think that's exactly how we should end this podcast. Yes, perfect. Um, but before we uh, wrap up completely, we're going to do co-op fun facts. So, Tony, give us a fun fact. Ten years ago, in 2005, uh, Cherryland Electric rates were 14% higher than consumers' energy for a residential home that used 707 kilowatt hours. Today, we are 5% lower. We've had almost a 20% swing in rate change over the last 10 years. That's awesome. To our neighbor. And so while that, all that good stuff has been going on, um, we've also, I'll go to 2006 and look at, uh, in the power supply world, we had one primary contract with DTE, and the majority of our supply was from coal. We were, in fact, we were close to 80% coal in, uh, in 2006. By fast forward 10 years, we're much less than that, and we will be at 30% renewable with about 30% coal exposure beginning in 2017. So basically, we're just all kinds of awesome. So that, that gets at the future ready and the affordability, and uh, I, I'm really happy where we're at today. Yep. Cheap, cheaper rates, cleaner energy. How can you go wrong? So I, I'm going to take a little liberty, and I have two fun facts. One is something that I heard Zach say in a presentation, and I thought it would come up today, and it didn't, so I'm going to say it now, and that is that the Clean Power Plan has more words than the King James Version of the Bible, which I just think is a... And we uh, haven't been arguing about that at all. Amazingly in interesting. But my, my fun fact is specific, actually, to this podcast. In 2015, we had a little under 1,500 plays on our podcast, which is just great. 1,500 people took the time to tune in and learn more about what's going on with your energy future. And what I'm really hoping is that those of you who are listening now will help us increase that number in 2016. So share the podcast. You can find it on our website. You can find it on SoundCloud, iTunes. Let's get the word out and get more people thinking about these things. Great. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Thank you.